Uh, I'd like to begin with one of the prayers from our uh, occasional prayers section in the new prayer book. I'm on page 672. This is prayer 90, for grace to seek God in every way. It's a prayer attributed to St. Benedict. I'm going to make it plural since there are a bunch of us. Gracious and holy Father, please give us intellect to understand you, reason to discern you, diligence to seek you, wisdom to find you, a spirit to know you, a heart to meditate upon you, ears to hear you, eyes to see you, a tongue to proclaim you, a way of life pleasing to you, patience to wait for you, and perseverance to look for you. Grant us a perfect end, your holy presence, a blessed resurrection, and life everlasting. Amen. So if I understand rightly, y'all have gone through question 113. Is that correct? Benefits of partaking in this, this sacrament of Eucharist. So we're picking up on one, with question 114. What is required of you when you come to receive Holy Communion? I am to examine myself as to whether I truly repent of my sins and intend to lead the new life in Christ, whether I have a living faith in God's mercy through Christ and remember his atoning death with a thankful heart, and whether I have shown love and forgiveness to all people. So you'll notice this is echoing in certain ways the call to confession that happens right before the confession prayer in the Eucharist liturgy, right? There's this repenting of your sin, seeking to live in love and charity with your neighbor, intending to lead the new life. They're in slightly different order here, perhaps, but they're here. I'm to examine myself as to whether I truly repent of my sins and intend to lead the new life in Christ. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which conveniently I have open up here, uh, St. Paul retells the story of the institution of the Holy Eucharist, Jesus' words over the Holy Eucharist. This is the other place where we get these words in the New Testament besides the Gospels. And he's, he's challenging them, beginning in chapter 11, verse 20. He says, when you meet together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then he, he goes into this institution narrative. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this is a pattern that recurs through 1 Corinthians, this kind of chiastic 
uh, Jewish pattern of having something in the center, right? So sort of the ABA or ABCBA pattern. So he, he's confronting them about this concern. Then he moves into the heart of the thing, this Eucharistic narrative. And then he goes back to the concern in light of that, right? This is a pattern you'll see in this epistle. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. This is bad. (laughs) In case you were wondering. Let a man examine himself, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Oof. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together to be condemned. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. This is why people didn't receive communion a lot through the medieval and early modern period, actually really until the last century or so for a lot of folks. Um, And the reformers, I think rightly, wanted to move people toward receiving communion more, which I think is the early Christian practice, right? It's not just the celebration of Eucharist on Sunday, but people are ordinarily coming to receive the Eucharist on Sunday. But they had something that maybe we've lost sight of a bit, that this is a very holy and powerful thing and must be approached in a reverent and appropriate way. And if you're hanging on to sin that you're not repenting of, you are not ready to receive the sacrament of communion, and you should not because it's dangerous. Right? Um, This is why we have the confession in the Eucharist right before communion starts. So we have this opportunity to examine ourselves and say, is is there anything standing between me and God that I can name here before him before I go to the altar? So it's not there, right? But as this also says, I need to examine myself whether I've shown love and forgiveness to all people, okay? Okay. And, and especially to Christian people. This is, this is a kind of interpretive question in this passage from 1 Corinthians when it talks about discerning the body. Is it talking about discerning Christ's presence in the Eucharist? Or is it talking about recognizing Christ's presence in our brothers and sisters in fellow believers around us? I'm going to say yes. Um, in context, the weight is really more on the second thing probably. It's, it's the body of Christ in one another and how we're treating one another. Are we treating one another as bearers of Christ? I'm, I'm loving you. Or are we holding on to grudges, onto judgment, onto unforgiveness, these sorts of things? This is why it's really convenient, I think, although this is a shift from older liturgical patterns. It's really convenient that we have the passing of the peace immediately after the confession. Because this gives you an opportunity to say, is is there someone here to whom I could not extend the peace of Christ and mean it? If so, you're probably not ready to come to communion. Right? If there's a fellow believer that you can't 
desire God's peace for and, and offer that to them. Like, you need to work that out. This is, uh, Jesus says this. I think it's in Matthew's gospel. If, if your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled with your brother, then come back and make your sacrifice. Right? Our union with Christ and our union with another, one another are not things we can separate or not things we can split apart. It doesn't work that way. Um, and this doesn't mean that there won't be broken and challenging relationships in the church, right? There are people involved. You know this. Okay. Um, yes? Hmm, Good. Yeah, that's really good. Kids can repent of their sins, too. Um, and I, I actually do think there, there's a point, I've, I mean, I've seen that, this happen in this parish where there have been kids who are, once they get up to three, four, five years old, and their parents are like, look, you've got to cut this out or you're not going to be prepared to receive communion. Like you, you, you need to rethink your attitude right now and whether you can go have communion right now. And th- I think that's, that's legitimate, actually. Um, that being said, it is as, if they've been baptized, it is as children's of, children of God, children's, wow, okay, um, as members of the covenant of faith that they come, right? And so it is in, in this place of, of faith and trust that they're approaching are there sins we're aware of that we need to confess and name and turn from so that we're not dishonoring the body and blood as we come? So that we're not dishonoring the body that we corporately are as we come? That, that gets at the middle part of this answer, I think, um, whether I have a living faith in God's mercy through Christ and remember his atoning death with a thankful heart. And this gets sticky doesn't it? Because there are times when we're struggling with faith. That could occur to you on a Sunday morning. There are times when we're struggling to believe that God's forgiveness really is for us. Yes? People have experienced this? Okay. That could also happen on a Sunday morning. The communion prayer may be going on, And there's a difference between unrepented sin and sin for which you struggle to receive God's mercy, right? These are not the same thing. And this is why in the exhortation, in the prayer book, in all the prayer books going all the way back, um, which is this, it's a call to examine yourself to be very thoughtful and intentional about how you approach Holy Communion It says, I'm going to look it up and read it. We've got prayer books. So this is going to be on page 147, 148. Um, This call to self-examination, to awareness of what communion is. On the top of page 148, It says, if you have come here today with a troubled conscience and you need help and counsel, come to me or to some other priest 
and confess your sins that you may receive godly counsel, direction, and absolution. To do so will both satisfy your conscience and remove any scruples or doubt. So in, in our tradition, post-Reformation, confession is not emphasized in the way it is in the Middle Ages, right? But one of the ways it is that attention is drawn to it is that confession can be a way of dealing with this sense of shame or guilt or struggling to embrace and receive God's forgiveness. Saying, have I really received? I mean, I've, I've tried to confess. There's something really powerful about absolution, hearing these words that don't depend on how I feel about my sin, that don't depend on my emotions about my own forgiveness, right? That there's something objective outside my own head happening here, these words being pronounced over me as I've come to confess and I've named my sin and God's forgiveness has been spoken. Uh, and so th there's a great story, which I keep waiting for the opportunity to use in a sermon that hasn't come up yet, so I'm just going to do it now, uh, about a, a Scottish preacher who's handing out, administering communion, and he comes to some young woman who's, whose head is just down, and she, she's weeping. She's just weeping. She kind of looks up, and, and she's just weeping. And, and he reaches down, he offers her communion, and she, she's like, I don't know if I should take it or not. Just body language, right? And he says, take it, lassie. It's for sinners. Right? There's a difference between approaching presumptuously with unrepented sin and approaching as one who has repented and is in desperate need of God's mercy. That's who communion's for. You see that? You see the difference? Okay. That's what a living faith in God's mercy through Christ, remembering his atoning death with a thankful heart looks like. Saying, I, I am desperately in need of this. I am a forgiven sinner who needs to be sustained and fed by the mercy of God to keep me alive, to help me resist sin so I don't just fall back into it, right? Like, I need this. That's a good place to be coming to communion from. That's okay. Right? And so we don't, we don't approach in fear. We approach with reverence, with an awareness of this holy thing. But we don't approach in fear. We approach with confidence in the God of love who calls us to himself, who wants to forgive sinners who repent. Right. So what is it? Question 115. What is expected of you when you have shared in Holy Communion? Having been renewed in my union with Christ and his people through sharing in the supper, I should continue to live in holiness, avoiding sin, showing love and forgiveness to all, and serving others in gratitude. How does communion affect you in real life? Right? 
If God really is giving grace through the sacraments, then it, it should do work in us. And it may be long, slow work, but there should be work God's doing through the sacraments. Living in holiness. Right? Just because we come as repentant sinners desperately in need of God's mercy doesn't mean grace doesn't do real work to transform our lives. It does. It can. It should. It will. Avoiding sin. Showing love and forgiveness to all. If we've been reconciled, if we've been received in this way, right, this is Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. If we've received this kind of forgiveness, how can we not turn around and extend that to others? And then serving others in gratitude. This is the post-communion prayer, right? Send us out to do the good works you have prepared for us to walk in. Communion is meant to empower us for life in the world. Any questions about this? We're kind of wrapping up the communion section here before we go on to other sacramental acts. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the kind of context of communion, the act of participation in this total act of worship that it is, how does that apply to kids? That's a good question. And I, I think there are a little bit different perspectives that people take on this. Uh, I'll offer my kind of instinctive response Someone else might see this a little bit differently. I think, to me, the, the question probably would be, is, is the child at a point to be able to understand that there is something different going on here, as you're saying? That, like, okay, what, what is an 18-month-old's understanding of holiness? I don't know. I don't remember. Um, it does seem to me that I've, I've watched two-year-olds, maybe even younger, want communion, and I don't think they just want a snack, and I, I don't think they only want to do what everyone else is doing. Like, there is some of that, but it's surprisingly young kids can understand that something special is going on here, um, and, and can have explained to them we're here to receive Jesus. So, there's some wisdom, there's some parental discretion there, right? And we do leave it up to parents to make those judgments on whether you want your kids to be receiving communion very young or wait till they're a little older. Um, you, you can evaluate that. I think my instinct is to default toward in favor of reception for children and to pay attention to then trying to do that very early level catechesis of helping the child understand something unique and distinctive is going on here. Because uh, th there's something really powerful about growing, like never remembering not being a participant in Holy Communion. That's actually really cool. and kind of growing and deepening in your understanding of it as you grow and deepen in your understanding of the world, of everything, right? As you say, it's not the case that 
any of us adults in the room fully understand everything that's happening here either. There's a Methodist pastor I remember hearing when I was a teenager, and he said, people ask me, like, about children receiving communion, which Methodists also do. Uh, he's like, do they understand it? And he said, I, I just look at him and say, do you? <laughs> As a, like, 15, 16-year-old, I thought that was a very convincing argument. <laughs> I kind of still do. Yeah. Let us press on to consider other sacramental acts. This is question 116. Other ri- are there other sacraments, other rites and institutions commonly called sacraments include confirmation, absolution, ordination, marriage, and anointing of the sick. These are sometimes called the sacraments of the church. Let's go ahead and do the next question as well. How do these differ from the sacraments of the gospel? They are not commanded by Christ as necessary for salvation, but arise from the practice of the apostles and the early church, or are states of life blessed by God from creation. God clearly uses them as means of grace. So this is coming out of Reformation discussions about sacraments and how many there are. The Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages says there are seven. The Reformers start looking at and thinking through, partly for kind of Augustinian logic reasons and partly for sola scriptura reasons, mostly come down on two, although Luther early on thinks there might be three. He thinks confession probably is one. At the start of one of his books and by the end of the book, he seems to convince himself that it's not. Um, Although he still thinks you should do it. He just doesn't think it lands in the category of a sacrament. Um, And Anglicanism is going to make this distinction between the dominical sacraments, the sacraments instituted by our Lord, baptism, Holy Eucharist, which are normally necessary for salvation, which are part of the ordinary life of all Christian people, right? And these other sort of acts that are instituted by the church, which Christ doesn't command everyone to... Everyone is not commanded to get married. Everyone is not commanded to be ordained. You don't, in the Anglican tradition, you're not required to make confession to a priest. We encourage it. But you you don't have to, right? Um, You you don't have to have last rites, although why would you not want to do that? (laughs) If you or someone you know is dying, call your priest. Okay. Um, but, but what the catechism does is that it makes the move to talk about the sacraments of the gospel, these dominical sacraments, and these sacramental acts of the church, which it says are also things God uses to give grace. Right? And, and this is something that's going to be debated through the Reformation, post-Reformation period, but our catechism is taking this position that God does use these things as means of grace, although they don't have quite the same um, status, universal requirement, expectation for Christians. Because they are rooted in Scripture and the life and practice of the church, because we are part of this living tradition, because God does use the ordering and the gifts and the graces, the, the realities of this created world to give grace to us. God uses 
the laying on of hands. God uses anointing with oil. God uses water. God uses bread. God uses wine. These are means whereby grace is given. And so the, the rest of this section is going to then work through confirmation, absolution, ordination, marriage, and anointing of the sick, which are the other five on the medieval list. Right? All of which we do. Question 118. What is confirmation? After making a mature commitment to my baptismal covenant with God, I received the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer. If you read the book of Acts, which I think we are right now in the New Daily Office Lectionary, apostles laying hands on people is a thing that happens a lot. Yes? And it gets mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Paul says to Timothy, um, do not fail to stir up the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Right? We have this idea of gifts being given of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's empowerment being given through the laying on of hands, this physical act by the apostles. And then as the life of the church continues through the laying on of hands by bishops who continue the apostles' ministry of shepherding and oversight in the church. Bishops are not identical with the apostles, but they carry on this apostolic vocation and ministry, including the laying on of hands. It's not a mistake, by the way, that laying on of hands happens in both confirmation and ordination, and that often anointing with chrism will occur in both as well. Why? Because confirmation, and I, this gets at it, a mature commitment to my baptismal covenant with God, I received the bishop's laying on of hands with prayer. So th there's an aspect of it that's something we're doing, right? We're standing up and making this public proclamation. Yes, I believe this faith. I affirm it for myself. If you were baptized at six months old like I was, this is your opportunity to embrace that for yourself. And if you remember on All Saints Sunday a few weeks ago, in the baptismal liturgy, the godparents and parents of these infants were charged to catechize them, to teach them everything that a Christian ought to know, believe, and do for his soul's health or her soul's health. And then when they're ready, bring them to the bishop to be confirmed. And they promised they would. Right? This is part of the charge that godparents and parents undertake is to prepare children to be grow up as adults who are ready to come and make this declaration of their own faith. Baptism is, is pointing toward this. But there's also a work God is doing. Right? And this is question 119. What grace does God give you in confirmation? In confirmation, God strengthens the work of the Holy Spirit in me for his daily increase in my Christian life and ministry. Right? So, so it's not just a public declaration of faith. Right? It's not just something we're doing. 
Sacraments are never just something we're doing or even probably primarily something we're doing. Sacraments are things God does through His church, in the life of His church. And you see this every time the apostles lay hands on people in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit does stuff. Right? People get healed. People get delivered. People start speaking in tongues. Things happen through this apostolic laying on of hands. And what we should expect then in confirmation, and part of what's happening is a work of the Holy Spirit to equip and empower God's people to do those good works He has called them to do that we ask Him to help us do every Sunday at the end of the communion liturgy. There's a graced equipping empowering that's given through confirmation. Let's make a distinction here. It's not the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. In the Anglican tradition, we, we don't think that. The Holy Spirit is given in baptism. It actually says this in our confirmation liturgy. Okay. You're fully a Christian if you're baptized, right? Um, but confirmation is this gift of empowerment, giving of graces to do ministry, to do work in the world, to serve in the church, to act on God's behalf. And this, going back to 1 Corinthians, where's Paul going to go? Immediately after this chapters 10 and 11 talking about Holy Communion, he immediately starts talking about spiritual gifts and the way that God's people are given these gifts so that they can be gifts to one another for the building up of the body. Right? This is, this is really important. This didn't occur to me till surprisingly late in the process, but a few years ago it, it finally dawned on me, oh, when 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is talking about spiritual gifts, it's not so much like gifts given to me for me, but ways that God is making us gifts to one another, right? Gifts given through us to the body. How is God making you a gift to these other people around you in the pews, right? Part of the way that work happens is in confirmation. And then finally, confirmation is us making an act of saying, yes, I, I want to be part of the life of God's people here in this community, in this communion, in this place. Now, again, let's make a distinction. We don't confirm people as Anglicans, right? That, that's not what the prayer says. We confirm people as members of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Same as in ordination. I, I wasn't ordained to be a priest in the Anglican church in North America or in the Anglican communion. I was ordained as a priest in Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's what it says on the certificate, right? These, these are the words. Um, so confirmation is something that's happening in and with and for the entire church. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good. Yeah. 
I was also confirmed in the Methodist Church when I was 11 or so. Um, and then I had a bishop confirm me when I was, what, 22, when I came into the Anglican tradition. Um, there are a couple ways of thinking about this. It's a great question. There is a difference in what those two traditions actually mean by confirmation, right? I, I think in the Methodist Church, it is pri the weight is primarily on this public affirmation of faith, claiming it for yourself, which is great. That's good. Um, and there is an element of prayer, but it, it's not that kind of apostolic laying on of hands by a bishop, right? Methodists don't mean that by bishop. <laughs> they have people called bishops, but that's they have a different theology of what's going on there. Um, and so it, I think there is something different in seeking the laying on of hands by a bishop. But actually, the new prayer book... Um, so what, what has happened historically is if people were confirmed in uh, Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox churches, churches with bishops and apostolic succession, then they were received instead of being confirmed because it's like, oh, no, you've, you've been confirmed by a bishop. It's less and less the case that we can assume apostolic laying of hands by a bishop has happened even in those traditions. Um, more and more Rome is allowing sort of um, extraordinary special circumstances a priest can do it. And you know how extraordinary special circumstances are. They turn out to be the thing that happens a lot. Um, and in the Eastern Church, there's chrismation, but it's, it's often done by a priest. They, they think about it a little differently. Um, so, what's happened in the New Prayer Book is our, our bishops have said, look, we think what needs to happen is everybody needs a bishop to lay hands on them. But we know that lots of people have made these public affirmations of faith in the church before, and we think that that means something. Um, so, what we're going to do is we're going to receive those people, but we're going to pray a prayer over them that includes a prayer for the bestowal of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to lay hands on them so that whatever gap there may be there, we may not have all the information. We may not be in a position to judge that. If there is anything lacking, well, now a bishop has laid hands on them and prayed for the bestowal of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, but, but we're not going to assume that nothing happened there, that God hasn't already been doing work. So it's, it's a little quick and dirty honestly. Um, but, but it's a way of trying to navigate this kind of really complex ecumenical situation, theological situation, the, the practical difficulties of having all these different denominations and churches that treat this in different ways and deal with it in different ways. Go ahead. Well, part of, part of the assumption is, and I, I think this is, it's coming from the New Testament, or at least one way of interpreting the New Testament, right? It is an interpretation, for sure. But it's an assertion that there, there is something distinctive about the ministry of bishops as heirs of this apostolic ministry, and that there is particular authority in the life of the church and particular work bestowed upon them by the Holy Spirit to do. 
that, yeah, in our tradition, only a bishop can confirm, only a bishop can ordain. Um, those, those are offices that belong to that particular ministry. And so, I mean, if I lay hands on you and pray for you, certainly God might do things, <laughs> of course. Um, if you lay hands on me and pray for me, God might do things too. Um, but, but there are different offices in the church and different authority that's given, and we, we do think that matters. Um, and so, I mean, it matters standing before the bishop as a representative of this apostolic lineage, which means partly as a representative of the unity of the whole church and making this public proclamation of the faith really before the whole church. Um, that, that maybe the, the witness of the bishop matters for something as well. Um, but maybe there's particular authority through which God acts in that laying on of hands as well. Does that answer the question? Obviously, lots of other Christians, maybe some of y'all will see it differently. That's fine. We can discuss further. Go ahead. Yeah, so kind of mutual recognition of orders would, how does it work out in practice to be ordained for the one holy Catholic and apostolic church? So, if someone who's ordained as a priest in the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church um, or certain other entities, um, the Old Catholic Church, uh, there's a Philippine Catholic Church, um, several kind of groups that spun off from the Anglican tradition in various ways, they would, they would presumably be um, received as, like the, their orders would be recognized and they would then be given permission to operate as a priest under these circumstances, you know, having become part of this church, right? Um, there are some cases where it's, it's a little unclear what the status of their apostolic succession is with a couple of those groups. And so there have been a few instances of people being conditionally reordained. Uh, same thing you do if you're not sure if someone's been baptized or not. <laughs> There's one baptism, right? You don't need to get baptized twice, but, but if we actually don't know for sure, or if, if there's real questions about, like, were you baptized in the name of the Trinity the first time, or in a, you know, Pentecostal oneness tradition where they don't use the name of the Trinity in baptism, it's like, well, if we know that, we're probably just going to baptize you, but, um, right, so, so there have been instances of that. Um, something like Typically, in the Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic Church, an Anglican priest, they would just ordain again. Um, they would not recognize our orders. Although I, I saw something the other day that leads me to think there may be some cases of 
Anglicans being conditionally reordained in the Roman Catholic Church. That, so that may have happened occasionally. Um, yeah, and, the, and this goes back to kind of late 19th century <laughs> Anglican and Roman Catholic debates about the status of our orders. And uh, I can get you the titles of the relevant Latin documents on both sides if you want to read them. <laughs> Once I knew, I wrote them down on a test at the end of the semester in seminary. I don't know them now. Um, but yeah, Leo XIII and whichever were the archbishops of Canterbury and York at the time sort of exchanged volleys of Latin titled documents. And, uh, yeah, so um, an Episcopalian, uh, probably ordained an apostolic succession, whatever kind of theological differences we may have, probably going to be received. Certain Lutheran groups um, and certain of the Uniate churches like the Church of India, which is sort of part of the Anglican Communion, Church of Pakistan, same thing. Um, those, those groups would probably be received if, if we could verify with some confidence that they had been ordained in apostolic succession. Other Lutherans, Methodists, etc., would probably just be ordained because what they mean by it and what we mean by it are actually different things, right? So we, it's sort of an apples and oranges. Like we're, we're using the same word to talk about different theologies that actually have different intent. Does that answer the question? Okay, cool. How are we on time? Oh, I really want to get into absolution, so I'm going to. <laughs> Question 120. What is absolution? After repenting and confessing my sins to God in the presence of a priest, the priest declares God's forgiveness to me with authority given by God. Okay. Some of y'all have made confession to a priest. Some of y'all are like, that's pretty weird. Tell me about that. Um, let, let's look at the Scripture real briefly. Um, John chapter 20 is one of the biblical texts you want to think about in this light. So this is Easter Sunday evening. The disciples are in the upper room. They have the door locked. They're afraid. They're pretty confused about what's going on. And it says, I'm picking up in verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. It's a really strange thing to say. But however exactly you want to interpret that, something is going on in a bestowal of authority upon Jesus' followers, upon these first leaders of the church, as it's going to be, to enact his forgiveness, right, to, to speak, bear authority in 
the ministry of reconciliation, of reconciling people to God in the forgiveness of sins. And the other passage you want to think about is in James chapter 5. Start in verse 14. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. <clears throat> the prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. So we've got a couple of pieces there. We, we have this anointing and prayer for healing. That's another of our sacramental acts. You'll get to that next week, I expect. But along with that, not just physical healing, but also spiritual healing. One of the things I love about just the arrangement of this new prayer book is that someone had the genius idea of putting confession and visitation anointing of the sick together in, as rites of healing. And I think that's right. And I think, I think we get that from the letter to James, the letter of James here. Um, that we, we need to be healed both in body and in soul. And part of the work of confessing our sins that we may be forgiven is entering into that forgiveness, into, into that healing, right? That restorative work that God wants to do. Now, you might ask, okay, wait a second. It says confess your sins to one another. It doesn't specify to whom you confess your sins. True, good point. Uh, you will notice that in the are you sick call the elders of the church and let them pray and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, right? So that the elders are involved here somehow. Side note, English word priest derives from the Greek word presbyter, translated here elder. Bonus points. Um, mutual accountability walking with one another, being honest with fellow believers and having people who can hold you accountable and, and really know you is good and I'm for it. All right? We're not opposed to that. Uh, but there does seem to be this element, certainly in that text from John's gospel, of a particular authority given to the apostles and within the church that there are those who exercise certain aspects of Christ's priestly ministry on behalf of the church. Because again, remember being given these gifts by the Spirit isn't like, here, here's this gift for you, but how are you being made a gift to your fellow believers? Holy orders like the diaconate, priesthood, bishops. Um, these are also, I think, ways that particular members of the body are being made gifts to the church in order to enact different aspects of Christ's own ministry of the Holy Spirit's work in the body. And one of those, historically, is authoritatively pronouncing absolution, which is, in our tradition, like Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions, something that belongs to bishops and priests properly um, as part of that office. 
Can you assure someone of God's forgiveness using the words of Scripture? Absolutely. Um, but, but again, there may be particular authority given within the church and particular work that God does through that. Um, subjectively, for reassurance of our own conscience, as I was saying earlier, to say, when the enemy, the accuser, the Satan, right, comes and condemns and recalls sins to mind, to say, but wait, I named those before God. But wait, one with authority to do so spoke the words of God's forgiveness over me. Okay, Satan, you're, you're going to have to go take that up with Jesus. He has those now. That's, like, that, that's not, I'm not the person you need to deal with. Jesus has those sins. Right? And it, it gives us a kind of confidence. So there, there's this really subjective grace. Also, it's just really helpful to make a good confession, to do this work of preparation and have to, like, name them out loud. I mean, one probably doesn't want to much of the time, right? And when you hit the thing where you're like, oh, shoot, I do not want to say this where someone else can hear, that's probably the thing you really need to say. At least that's always my conclusion when I'm the one confessing. Um, that it, I find it really helps me make a better and more thorough confession. I just get way down into the nitty-gritty realities of my own sin in a way that I don't when I'm just kneeling by my chair in my living room, right? That's probably a failure on my part to do good self-examination at home. Okay, granted. But I think it is helpful to have this other person who can walk alongside, help us discern, help us recognize some of the patterns that we may not be able to see, help us see, oh, this is the thing I was really freaked about and felt guilty about, but actually this other sin may be more dangerous, and I haven't, I haven't been evaluating that clearly. Right? There's really good work that a good confessor can help with. But also this objective gift of grace that's given in absolution. Right? So let, let's conclude with question 121 here. What grace does God give to you in absolution? In absolution, God conveys to me his pardon through the cross, thus declaring to me reconciliation and peace with him and bestowing upon me the assurance of his grace and salvation. I apologize for not leaving time for questions about that, which you may have, and I would be thrilled to talk about and answer them at any later time. Uh, corner me after church or something, and let's do that. But right now, let's say a prayer. Mighty God, we praise you and thank you for all the gifts and graces that you give us through these sacraments, through your church, through one another. Help us to live in the power of this life of grace. Help us to do the good works that you have prepared for us to walk in. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks, y'all.